Well, let me say a prayer for us, and primarily for me, okay, as uh, I get ready to bring the word to us this morning. Father, thank you for a nice warm building to come to and worship you in. We thank you for the warmth of family and friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, the, the beauty, beautiful warmth of Christian fellowship, and I am grateful for it today. I know many of us are. And uh, Lord, I believe you have something for us today through your word, and I pray you'd help me to be able to speak and say the things you want said today. Challenge us, Lord, to be the people of God that you have called us to be. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And you know there's a study guide in in your worship folder that you can pull out and you can track along with me. This opening series uh, for 2018, we've titled it Buck the Trend. Buck the Trend. And I want to let you know what's underneath that phrase and why we're using it. You see, the Bible tells us that God has always wanted to have a special people for himself, a people that he could call his very own, a family, really. And uh, this is one of the themes that's woven throughout the entire Bible. It's one of those golden threads, you could say, that, that weaves the whole story of the Bible together, ties it together. God's desire is to have a very unique family comprised of people from every language, every tribe, every ethnicity, every race, every background, a family who will live in a special covenant relationship with the Lord, a royal family, because our God is a king, right? A royal family that God can dwell with forever. And we see this phrase in the Bible all throughout, and I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you'll be my people people. We, we see that statement over and over again from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And this has always been God's dream to have a forever family. The scriptures also reveal that God's desire is that his special people live their lives in such a way as to reflect him to the surrounding world that we live in, to reflect his character, his nature, that our lifestyle would have a a, a distinctive quality about it and and would stand out, be different in some regards from the lifestyles of people who don't know the Lord in order that they might get a glimpse of God, right? And, And want Him, want Him in their lives, want to be in His family. So when Jesus made statements to His followers like, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, That's what he was getting at. He he was saying, live out this new identity that I've given you. Live it out. Flesh it out in your daily life. You're you're here in this world for a purpose. So be salty salt for me. Be bright light for me, he's saying. Don't, Don't hide it. Let it show. One thing has become very apparent as Christians have attempted to live out their distinctive calling down through the centuries, and it's this. It takes effort to do this. It takes focused effort and determination to live this way. Why? Because the rest of the culture is flowing in another direction, isn't it? If we just coast along in the the current of this culture, it's not likely to carry us closer to God, is it? It's not likely to carry us towards holy, distinctive living for Jesus Christ. 
And so if you and I want to live a life that, that does reflect who we are in Christ, it's probably going to feel like we're swimming upstream, like we're going against the flow. We'll be bucking the trend. I don't know about you, I love Billy Graham. Anybody else love Billy Graham here? I just love that man for many reasons. See, think about it. Nary a smudge on his name or reputation through seven decades of ministering the gospel. He's in his 90s now, and uh, when, when that man goes home to be with the Lord, which could be soon, I mean, that's going to be a funeral service to behold for sure. I'll bet you the gospel is preached at that service. There's a TV station that sometimes airs old sermons that Billy Graham preached, and from time to time I enjoy watching them. And one thing I've noted, and that's been a, just a great blessing and encouragement to me is to see that his message from the 40s through the 2000s has remained the same. Always good news, always the news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, always the gospel. I'm so challenged by that. I think every preacher ought to be. I recently came across a sermon that he preached, and he said something about the people of God, the, the saints, those who are believers that kind of struck me, and it it's appropriate for what we're talking about here today. He said this, and I wish I could preach it like Billy Graham, but uh, I can't. <clears throat> he said, Christians are like the Gulf Stream. Christians are like the Gulf Stream, which is in the ocean and yet not part of it. This mysterious current defies the mighty Atlantic. It ignores its tides and flows steadily upon its course. Its color is different, being a deeper blue, its temperature is different, being warmer. Its direction is different, being from south to north. It is in the ocean and yet not part of it. So we as Christians are in this world. We come in contact with the world and yet we retain our distinctive kingdom character and refuse to let the world press us into its mold. I think Billy Graham was just saying what the Bible says in many, many places. Consider these passages from the scriptures. Ephesians 2, it talks about our former life, our life before we were Christians, before knowing Christ. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, literally the directional flow, following the flow, going along with the current of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul was saying, in your BC life, before you knew Christ, you were just flowing along in the current. But now that you've come to Christ, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world. Do not let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's what Jesus said once to his disciples in John 15, 19. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, doesn't understand you. John wrote this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then in his great prayer to his father, Jesus petitioned him for this. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So from this, can you see that that God's special people have been called out by him, called out from the world, set apart from the world to be sanctified by him, transformed in their lives, and then sent back into the world as his representatives, his emissaries, his missionaries to live in a manner that is distinct from the world. Can you see this? So we've been called out in order to be sent back in. We are in the world, for the world, but not of the world. Now maybe you hear that call to not love the world and and it's confusing to you perhaps. Maybe you're thinking, but wait a second, doesn't it say that God so loved the world? I thought we were supposed to be like God and, and love people. So we need to understand when we see that term, the world, in Scripture, it could have one of three different meanings, okay? Sometimes when you see the phrase the world, it's referring to the created world, the earth, the planet we live on. God made the world and everything in it, it says in Acts 17. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes it's referring to the people of the world, the inhabitants uh, of the earth, earth dwellers. For God so loved the world. And he's not talking about the earth, the trees and the plants are talking about the people of the world for whom Christ died. But then sometimes when you see that phrase, the world, it's talking about the world system. That dominant value system that permeates the culture that we live in. That way of looking at life and looking at the world that tries to suppress the reality of God, that tries to suppress the truth of his ownership and lordship over all of his creation. It's a mindset that's anti-God and anti-Christ, and it's under the sway, as we heard, of the evil one. So when John wrote and said, do not love the world, what he meant was refuse to fall in love with that world, the world system that is geared towards Uh, helping you forget God and helping you sin better and sin more and just live for the selfish pleasure of the moment. That world. That world that's being run by Satan who is called the God of this world. And he says this world isn't going to last. It's it's passing away. It's, it's, It's lust. It's desires are passing away. And so swim upstream if you must. Don't love the world. Go against the flow. Buck the trend, the prevalent cultural trend that wants to marginalize God. Yes, love the people of this world. Absolutely. But don't get swept downstream with them towards destruction because that is where this world system is headed for destruction. In that verse, John tells us that this world system operates according to three philosophies. Did you note that? 
The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's an unholy trifecta of sensuality and greed and pride. Sensuality, the, 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 the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, that's the philosophy that says if it feels good, do it, and don't worry about if anybody gets hurt in the process. Just do what comes naturally. Gratify the desires of the flesh. That's sensuality. The desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, that's greed or, or greedy materialism. That philosophy says if you, if you see something that you want, don't deny yourself anything. Do whatever it takes to get it now. And then the pride of life, that is this idea of taking joy and feeling superior to other people. Especially when it comes to um, acquiring more and better possessions than they have in order to feel better about ourselves. This is the philosophy of the world system that we live in. In short, you could say it goes like this. Forget about God. We don't really need Him anyway. Live it up. Feed your flesh. Satisfy your eyes. Stoke your pride. Make a name for yourself. That's the world we live in, and that's the, the primary flow, the directional flow of this culture, isn't it? Always has been. So if Christians, if, if believers in Jesus Christ are truly going to live out their true identity as God's special people, if we're going to be salty salt and bright light in this world, like Jesus called us to be, there's going to be times then where we're going to have to go against the flow. We're going to have to swim upstream. We're going to have to be different. We're going to have to be, be willing to risk being a little bit different than some people around us to be peculiar, as we saw in Scripture last week. I came across an excerpt from a, a new book that came out recently that talks about how Christians, even way back in the second century, we're often seen as somewhat strange people. <laughs> the author wrote this. He said, Christians have been viewed as cultural misfits from the beginning. And the reasons for this have changed very little over the last two millennia. In the second century, four features of Christianity stood out to the Romans as being peculiar, if not offensive. The first was the way that they worshiped. A fundamental aspect of early Christian worship was its exclusivity. Only Jesus was to be worshipped, said the Christians. Whatever other religious loyalties one possessed before coming to Christ, they had to be abandoned and full devotion given to Jesus their king. Now, one might think that the Roman state wouldn't care much about private worship practices, but they did care because the Roman government didn't view religion as private. To be a good citizen of Rome, your duty was to pay homage to the Roman gods. They were the ones who kept the empire prosperous and flourishing. To refuse to worship the gods wasn't only socially rude, but it risked invoking the gods' displeasure. Thus, Christians' refusal to participate in the broader Roman worship caused them to be viewed as reckless and callous to the welfare of their fellow man. Indeed, they were called haters. Haters of humanity. This is in the second century. As a result, they often suffered serious persecution. He goes on to write, in addition to political persecution, the early Christians suffered significant 
intellectual persecution. Christian doctrine, particularly the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man. That was regarded as ridiculous, silly, and not worthy of the intellectual Roman elites. For Romans, the idea of worshiping a crucified person was the height of insanity. Crucifixion was a symbol of shame and rejection. Why would you follow someone who suffered such an indignity? Consequently, the likes of Lucian, Galen, Fronto, and Celsus offered scathing critiques of this new religion, Christianity, mocking its teachings as well as its crucified founder. He says it wasn't just what Christians believed, though, that made them unusual. It was also how they behaved. Christians stood out from their culture because of their distinctive sexual ethics. While it wasn't unusual for Roman citizens to have multiple sexual partners and engage with temple prostitutes even, Christians refused to participate in these practices. One early Christian writer, Tertullian, said this about Christians, One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us except our wives. Why does he say this? Because in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't unusual for people to share their spouses. So Christians were distinctive in their sexual ethic. That brought even more ridicule. And finally, Christians were also viewed as peculiar by their Roman counterparts because of, their distinctive, because of the distinctive role Scripture played in their religious life. Although a scripturally-centered religion seems utterly normal in our day, back in the second century, it was unusual. It confused the Romans. What exactly was this Christianity? Was it a religion? Didn't seem like any religion they were used to. Indeed, Christianity's bookish nature made it seem more like a philosophy, and as a result, many critics of Christianity just lumped it in with other schools of philosophy. So here's the author's conclusion. That weak, fledgling, persecuted church not only survived, but eventually spread across the empire and the entire world. That did not happen because the early Christians abandoned their distinctives. It happened for precisely the opposite reason they stayed faithful to them. So it's always been this way. It's, it's distinctive Christian living that makes the impact, right? Not just trying to blend in in the culture, kind of be incognito Christians. God's people have been called out from the world, sanctified, set apart, called to live a distinctive lifestyle, and then sent back into the world to have an impact for Christ, to represent Him by living a life that adorns the gospel, is the way that Paul put it. This idea of, of Christians being in the world and, and seeking to spread the influence of Christ and being bright light and salty salt, it's often referred to as cultural engagement. And it's a very challenging issue for Christian people. By the way, Jesus was a master at this, at cultural engagement. He did it in such a way that created tremendous impact. Do you remember his words from that famous prayer? As you have sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. Think about it. Think about how Jesus was sent into this world. He was sent into first century Middle Eastern culture, right? 
And so he engaged with that culture, didn't he? He wore the attire that was popular in that culture. He ate the food. He spoke the language. He observed the feasts and the holidays and the celebrations that were observed in that culture. I think because Jesus perfectly understands proper cultural engagement, if, he, if he'd been sent into this culture, 21st century Western culture, I don't imagine that Jesus would be walking around in long flowing robes and sandals. I think he'd more likely be wearing jeans, have an iPad, use Facebook, eat at Chipotle, maybe not anymore, Canes or BB Bop, attend certain good movies, observe some of our cultural customs, all the while being on mission from his Father to be light in this world and not compromising his holiness at all. This matter of properly engaging the culture, let's just admit it, it's kind of tricky. I personally wrestle with it big time. How much cultural engagement is too much? How much or how little is too little to have any impact? How do we engage with the people of this world without compromising our distinctiveness as the special people of God? How do we as believers remain in the world, for the world, but not of the world? So I want to give us some categories to help us think about this, okay? Let me, let me offer to you today five postures or stances that Christian people have taken down through the centuries when it comes to this matter of engaging with the culture, okay? So the first one we'll talk about is antagonism. Antagonism. Some Christians have chosen this as their posture towards the culture that we live in. This is being in the world, but against the world. It's antagonistic towards the culture. It's always on the attack. This is, okay, I guess we've got to live here in this world, but I hate it. I think pretty much everything out there is evil and bad and wrong, and so I'm going to speak out against it every chance that I get. And those who take this stance, those Christians who take this stance, take this buck-the-trend metaphor and, and turn it into a, a militant mindset that can easily devolve into just, you know, heaving a steady barrage of grenades at the culture all the time. This is often what Christian people are known for, right? What we're against. Oh yeah, those Christians, they don't do this, they don't do that, they're against this, they're against that. That's this antagonistic stance. And for sure, there are some cultural trends that we ought to be against. No doubt about that. I mean, we're talking about bucking the trend here. A problem with this stance, though, is that the people of the world, our neighbors, many of whom are just floating downstream in the cultural current because they don't know anything else, our neighbors can end up feeling just being attacked by us instead of being loved by us. And our Lord called us to what? Love our neighbors. They can sense that, that, that we're disgusted with them and their lifestyle and their habits and the things that they do. And when people feel that way, when they feel attacked, they're not open. They're, they're closed off. They're defensive. They've got the gloves up, right? They're on guard. 
So instead of us coming across as bright light and salty salt to them, brightening things up and stimulating their spiritual thirst for God, we're more like, I was trying to think of a good analogy, we're more like smoke in their eyes, an irritant, right, that they want to get away from. They feel judged by us when we're in this attack mode, antagonism mode. They, they imagine that we enjoy feeling superior to them by elevating ourselves to a position of holier than thou. And it closes them off. So when Christians adopt this posture of constantly being against the world, against the world, against the world, the people of the world will likely not feel that we're for them. And that's not good. Yes, we are to remain unspotted from this world, but not at the expense of fulfilling our mission to the people of the world for their good. So that's antagonism. Other Christians take their distaste for the world and they channel it kind of in, a, in another direction. A second posture we could call isolation. Isolation. So this is the attempt to be not of the world by basically running away from the world. This happens when followers of Christ get so concerned about remaining pure and uncontaminated by the culture that they decide to just opt out. I was recalling that movie, The Village. Remember that movie from a number of years ago? Remember that? That group of people that basically created this alternative community outside of society, outside of culture, an attempt to get away from all the pollution and all the contamination, all the bad influences that were out there. That stance is called isolation. And let's be honest. When the culture gets so decadent, and when sin is being celebrated in the streets and celebrated in the media and evil is called good, that notion of packing up your family and heading out with a few other like-minded friends to go start your own village out in the plains of Kansas somewhere can sound a little bit appealing, right? But you know what? It's fantasy. It's pure Fantasy, as people have discovered who've tried that route. Plus, again, Christians who isolate themselves are essentially ignoring their commission to be in the world, sent into the world. You cannot influence people you have no contact with. So this posture of isolation, while maybe having some appeal to some people, just doesn't square with what Jesus called us to as his special people. So some Christians realize that and they embrace another stance that's kind of a cousin to isolation. We'll call this one insulation, number three, insulation. And this is a step closer to the culture, but still kind of unengaged. This is being kind of in the world, but not of the world. The insulated Christian didn't, didn't move to a remote place to get away from all the badness, so technically they still live in the world, but they've decided to basically cocoon themselves in an attempt to remain uncontaminated by the world. <coughs> Excuse me. People who have this mindset say, you know what, we're going to live here in this world reluctantly, 
But we're going to try to completely insulate ourselves and our kids and protect our family from any and all cultural influence. And so they immerse themselves in their Christian subculture and rarely venture out. They try to stay separated from any and all worldliness. I'm aware of a congregation in our town that tells its parents that they can send their children to public school if they must, but they should require their kids to eat lunch alone at a different lunch table than the rest of the children so as to avoid any contamination by the worldly kids. They have to play by themselves at recess so they don't come into contact with all the evil children, the worldly children. I think they're not sure what to do with technology and Snapchat and Xbox. Some families decide that watching TV and playing video games, going to movies, listening to culturally popular music, or all of that's, are, that's tools of, the, of Satan to bring worldly influence into our home, into our family, and so they put a ban on all those things. And I've got to say that as a parent, I've had that inclination at times, and some of you probably have as well. I just want to cocoon here and insulate my kids, keep them protected from all that badness out there. And I do believe in a degree of insulation. But this, this, this extreme separationism, I think often just leads to pride and also to some dilemmas. It's very, very tricky <laughs> to be consistent in this separationist lifestyle. It really is. Try as we might, we're just not able to completely insulate ourselves or our kids from all aspects of culture. Yes, we should resist being conformed to the world, that's true. And yes, we have created a kind of Christian subculture in this church, that's what you want to call it. But that extreme stance that says, let's cocoon ourselves and not have any meaningful contact with people who are different than us, that's foreign to Scripture. That's foreign to the calling that we have in Jesus. Think about it. Our lifestyle can really only show its distinctiveness if we're in proximity to people. Salt only seasons what it comes in contact with, right? That's why there's that famous book title, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Quarantining ourselves in order to stay pure is going to have a negligible impact on this world that we've been left in. If Jesus didn't want that, he would have just taken us right home to heaven when he saved us. But he left us here to be salty salt and bright light to the people of this world. And so look, other Christian people, after thinking about this, decide that all this effort to figure it all out isn't really worth it. Plus, they grow weary of always being the weird ones the outsiders, always feeling left out. So they just give up. They get tired of resisting the current and they just decide to lay back in their tubes and float down Lazy River with everybody else. And this posture is often referred to as accommodation. Accommodation. Time out for a moment. Oh, that's good. Accommodation. This is the one, frankly, I'm probably most worried about for me and for you. This is being in the world 
and of the world. With all that influence, all that pervasive round the clock, 24-7, everywhere you go, cultural influence bombarding Christians all the time, some families just give in. The current is too strong. And they say, look, everybody else is doing stuff. Why are we still trying to swim upstream? Our friends gave up long ago. Plus, it really does look like those people in those commercials are having a great time. So what the heck? Tired of fighting it. Kids, <clears throat> go ahead and dive in. Done trying to stop you. So these folks end up being in the world and of the world, compromised, indistinct from those among whom they live. Not bright light and salty salt, but dim light and bland seasoning that has very little effect. It doesn't stimulate any thirst in their neighbors. And I think it's to these people that the Bible writers say, do not love the world. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't let it press you into its mold. Don't just cave into the cultural current. Can you see why this is so challenging? It really is. So here's what I believe the Bible calls us to in this matter. A fifth posture stance. Let's call it missional engagement. Missional engagement. I believe that this was Jesus' stance. And I would describe this, as I've said, as being in the world, for the world, but not of the world. Say that with me. In the world, for the world, but not of the world. The mission-minded Christian recognizes that all of culture is not evil. There are good, redeeming things in our culture, so, so he refrains from making those broad, sweeping, judgmental statements about everything. He knows that mankind is created in the image of God. And even though that image is somewhat marred, somewhat defaced by sin, there are still some redeeming aspects in man-made culture, right? There is such a thing as beautiful art that humans have created. There is such a thing as stunning architecture. There have been wonderful advances in technology and in medicine that have benefited the human race and helped us immensely. There are inspiring athletic achievements. There is lovely music. There are movies that express the image of God in us. And so mission-minded Christians understand that about our culture, and they don't just make statements like, well, it's all just going to hell in a handbasket. You know, they realize, no, there's some good things. People have been made in the image of God. They create beautiful and wonderful things. But they also have a healthy wariness of culture. They know that in the culture, there are false gods everywhere in this culture. Things that have been given the prominent place in people's hearts that only Jesus should have. We've heard this statement before, right? When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Whether we're talking about food or family or sex or work or sports or politics or even church or ministry. Good things that people in our culture sometimes put ahead of God in their hearts. And that's called idolatry. And so like Paul did when he went into the city of Athens... 
mission-minded Christians seek to identify those idols, those cultural idols that are prevalent in the city in which they live, those substitute functional saviors that people worship. They seek to identify those so that they can show by their life and by their words that worshiping Jesus is more satisfying than worshiping any of those other false gods. That's the mission-minded, culturally engaging Christian. These people are not unengaged with culture, but they're engaged with a purpose. Alert to cultural influence, yes. Swimming upstream, yes. But also looking for ways to show their neighbors that Jesus is the Lord of their city. and He's the only one worthy of their devotion and worship. So listen, as the peculiar people of God, as members of God's special family, we need to be thinking about these things. Why? Because Jesus has called us out from the world in order to sanctify us and transform our hearts and minds and then send us back into the world for the good of the people of this world, our neighbors. So yes, we're bucking the trend, but we're also asking God to use us to help as many people as possible join us in this upstream journey towards greater joy, greater joy in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, take a moment and look at those five postures towards the culture. Which of them would you say most describes, <clears throat> excuse me, most describes you these days? Antagonistic? kind of snarling at the culture all the time, is that you? Or isolated, I just want to pick up my family and move to Idaho. As if there was no worldliness in Idaho. <laughs> Insulated, cocooned. Have you just decided it's too hard to swim upstream and you basically capitulated and decided to accommodate the world in your heart, embraced it? Or do you see yourself primarily as a missionary to the world? In it, for it, but not of it. You know what my view is at this stage of our culture? I think you're either a missionary or a mission field. I'm not sure there's any neutral ground anymore. I think you're one or the other. The current is too strong. So I think this is an important question for each of us to consider and, and to locate ourselves. Where am I and where is Jesus calling me to be? And I'm challenging you today to do that. Kind of take that personal assessment and say, where am I here and where does God want me to be? And so I've been praying this for us this new year. May Jesus use us in 2018 in amazing and surprising ways to live out our identity in him to be bright light, to be salty salt here in our city so that many other people will want him in their lives too and, and by faith become his adopted sons and daughters and part of this great, big, incredible royal family that we get to be a part of by faith. That's my prayer. Well, let's pray together. And Father, I thank you that... Um, you made a way for people to be in your family. You made a way for guilty sinners who fall short 
of everything you've ever demanded of us. You've made a way through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that we could be made right with you and forgiven and declared righteous in your sight by simple faith in Christ. Lord, thank you for making a way. And Lord, I pray for wisdom for all of us in knowing how to navigate this culture that we live in, Lord. Sometimes we step back and look at what goes on in our world and we're amazed. We're amazed by the advances and, and, and the things that humans have created. It's truly stunning. And other times we step back and go, wow, the culture is just going away from God so quickly. Lord, those of us who are, have a few decades under our belts, we remember a time when it felt different and, and Lord, it's... It's just different now. I pray you would help parents, Lord, who are raising children in this 21st century, Lord, who just need your wisdom. They need to hear your voice. Give them ears to hear how you would direct them in, in the many lifestyle choices they have with their children. Lord, we want to be distinct. We want to be in the world, for the world, but not of the world. So please, I pray. Give us wisdom to understand what that looks like for each and every one of us. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.